Welcome to another edition of Mormonland. I'm managing editor Dave Noyce, and I oversee our faith coverage. And I'm joined today by our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hello again, Peggy. Hi, Dave. The Tony-winning Book of Mormon musical is in Utah's Zion for the third time, bringing its own brand of raunchy, raucous, yet oddly reverential satire back to the Salt Lake City stage. But there may be more at play than meets the ear and eye when Elder Price joyously sings about getting his own planet, and Elder Cunningham lovingly lies his way to convert after convert in the jungles of Uganda. In fact, Mormonism's ties to musical theater, both from within the faith and without, run deep. Our guest today explores those connections in his new book, Mormons, Musical Theater, and Belonging in America. Jake Johnson, an assistant professor of musicology at Oklahoma City University, joins us today from his office in Oklahoma City. Jake, welcome. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Great. Well, first, Jake, could you explain your connections to Mormonism? Because they're interesting, your personal connections. Sure. I married into the faith, but I would raise... Uh, I was raised as a member of the Community of Christ, so the reorganized church at the time, and then married a Mormon woman and converted uh, when I was 19. And that was kind of my first entree into a lot of the subject material in this in this work. But that was that's been my relationship with the church since then. Yeah. Okay, so you, you let's let's jump to the musicals. Then you state that musicals are significant in Mormonism. How and why? It's a, it's an interesting position. It is interesting, and I, at, at first I only was observing this, you know, as a newcomer to this community. Um, but I started realizing pretty early on that that almost all the Mormons I knew were really interested in musical theater, and not only that, but there was a, a series of musical theater like productions that were very common um, with within the within the Mormon canon, and and so that that was kind of my first observation was like, wow, there's a there are a, there's a lot to do here with musical theater, and I, I wonder why. And what did you find out? Well, what I discovered in the book was there were kind of two levels of this. One, there's more obvious connection, like the way roadshows worked for Mormons. Um, Explain roadshows a little bit to our listeners. The roadshows, okay, yes. Roadshows were like stake or sometimes ward-level, congregational-level productions that were put on for fun, sometimes in friendly competition with each other. Uh, but they more or less took the form of pastiche musicals. Some some kind of musical theater component was put in there. So that was a very big part of uh, Mormonism in, for much of the last part of the 20th century. We're talking so very was, amateur, amateur level productions, right? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, very amateur. Yeah, <laughs> low budget. Uh-huh. <laughs> low budget. Okay, so we interrupted your your thought. So you were talking about no, musicals okay. so, from the past. So roadshows is one example, but also things like Saturday's Warrior, which is the cult classic film musical from the 70s, was made into a film in the 80s that almost every Mormon of my generation seemed to know and know really well and seemed to cite from the pulpit pretty regularly. (laughs) Um, So those were just a few examples of like literal musical theater. And then later I started seeing the ways in which the thing that undergirds musical theater and maybe some of the things that undergird Mormonism were pretty similar. And that had to do with theatricality and the way the voice gets presented in Mormonism. So those were really the binding agents for how I started getting into understanding better the cultural impact and significance of musicals uh, within Mormonism. So do you, let's start way back when, in the era of Brigham Young, what, what was 
the LDS Church's relationship to theater, and especially musical theater, and has it changed in recent years? What was the point of it back then, and how is it different today? So one quality of Mormonism that's distinct from other Protestant religions and other kinds of religions at the time in the 19th century was, was the degree to which theater was welcomed into the community. This was a time when many uh, more austere denominations were stripping away from drama. They thought it was, um, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll equivalent. It was uh, prone to make people think things and do things that maybe were irreverent. That was not the case in Mormonism. Even in Nauvoo, Joseph Smith uh, and Brigham Young and other leaders were frequently engaging in theater. It was very much a part of that world. Um, and especially as the saints were trekking west, um, theatrical troops were formed kind of ad hoc along the route. And Brigham Young favored this, especially because he felt like it allowed those who were struggling and suffering in their journey to think less about the struggles and sufferings they were undergoing and to kind of uplift them. Um, so theater became kind of a practical tool to uh, uh, repress, perhaps, or forget about some of your problems, and that carries all the way through till till they get to Salt Lake and the Salt Lake Theater gets constructed. What? How? How is that different than other faith groups? Why? Why do you think other faith groups weren't so quick to embrace these theater productions? Well, I think maybe on the surface, theater is about duplicity. It's about pretending to be something you're not. And I think the more austere and fervent, uh, maybe Calvinistic way of thinking for many of these other religions was that that was far from what you wanted to do to be able to engage with God. You wanted to actually be honest and have reverence and um, you know, far from pretend. On the other level, I think people, there was a, there was a stigma surrounding actors, which is not all that different today, which is that they were aloof. They were often traveling through town. They could sow a lot of seeds of destruction in a community. And I think people wanted to distance themselves from, especially religious, religious leaders wanted to distance their people and their believers from anything to do with the trappings of theater. So that was just kind of the common course at the, at the time. Um, and Mormons, for reasons that I can explain later, were kind of immune from that. And they actually really readily welcomed. In fact, Brigham Young, the leader who, who ushers them across the plains, was an actor himself and becomes kind of a impresario when they get to Salt Lake. So this is a very different kind of story than what you have with other religious groups at the time. And has, has that changed in the, in the contemporary church? Yes and no. I think musical theater is still more a part of the church today than it was in the 19th century, more directly about musical theater. Um, there's so much to say about the way theatricality and uh, pretend factor into Mormons, both in obvious ways of being musical theater, so things like um, road shows or literal musicals that are put on by, by, by Mormons, um, but also the way in which theologically there's a lot to say for what theatricality does and pretend does for Mormons. But the recent, um, actually since the book, uh, was published, the, the recent changes about the um, pageants has suggested maybe there is a shifting consideration about what musical theater does for Mormons. So obviously, as, as Dave did his introduction, the Book of Mormon musical is now on people's minds again. 
What do you think it is about Latter-day Saints that makes them so easy to ridicule in this production? <laughs> well, I, I think there is something to say for like the way in which the religion has become so closely associated with middle-class white values um, that seems so fervently defended and presented within Mormonism. Um, the happy-go-lucky optimism uh, of maybe a bygone era seemed very much embalmed within the way missionaries, for example, present themselves and the kind of script that they follow and even the costuming they present. Again, there's kind of theatrical uh, flavor to the, the way the church even proselytizes. That's one level to see that it's kind of easy to poke fun at that uh, in this, uh, in, in this uh, new century we have. Um, but also Mormons were already associable with theatricality to the degree where these creators of the musical who were not Mormon but grew up around enough Mormons to realize that there was a great deal to say about how Mormons kind of carried themselves in a, with a theatrical flair, that they, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, two of the creators of the show, frequently talked about as, as synonymous with Disney and Rodgers and Hammerstein, that Mormons were kind of all wrapped up within that that aesthetic and that way of, of, of being. Isn't it also the case that Mormonism has has multi-layer stories, storytelling, story of the founding of the church, story of the Book of Mormon. These are uh, unique storytelling elements that, you know, if you were set about to satirize Presbyterians, I don't know that you would have so much rich material there. Um, so I think that there, and those are all in the, in the play, do you think the fact of Mormon storytelling also makes it ripe for musical theater? I do, and I think that comes across with the way the missionaries um, interact with each other. They're used to, in, in a way, actual missionaries are very used to this as well, bearing testimony, giving vocal uh, confirmation of your faith in order to um, crowd out any element of doubt or to further affirm your position in the church or... Uh, to convince somebody else about your beliefs. And that happens in the show. The the 11th hour number by Elder Price is, I believe, and it's just a litany of actual theological tenets within the church that get presented in a way, they're delivered in a way that makes it laughable <laughs> to, to poke fun about um, believing in um, hosting your own or having your own planet in the future or in Jews sailing across the ocean to get in America. These are, in a sense, patently and in some sense maybe scientifically um, questionable realities, but the way in which actual Mormons engage with this kind of narrative kind of dismisses the reality for a bit and employs some theatrical, some kind of theatrical elements. So I think that is a part of the, the story in Book of Mormon that seems to make it so clearly Mormon-like it's, it's one thing to make fun of Mormons and to satirize them. It's another thing that sat, satire is actually getting at a little bit of reality and truth with it. Yeah, I, that, that band of missionaries, I want to talk about them in, in the play. You, you make some interesting points in your book about the opening song, Hello, you know, in the show with missionaries singing their various door approaches when proselytizing. And you talk about Elder Cunningham, who's sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, the comic foil in the cast, I guess, stands out mm -hmm. in this number and... And why is that significant? What, what you're seeing on stage is there's more at play there you talk about. Yeah, yeah. So the opening number, they're at the MTC still learning how to be missionaries. And 
Um, you see and hear this kind of lockstep number that's very militant, very March-like. And uh, all the other missionaries seem to be cheerily figuring out how to be a missionary, how to mold themselves in this way or to be like this, whatever standard exists and it's being enforced. When you meet um, Cunningham and he tries to press a doorbell, instead of the melodious ding-dong, which seems to be the sound that, that organizes that song, you hear this really abrasive screech. And uh, <laughs> he then follows the screech by saying something inappropriate that's not part of the script. And he's condemned by this voice. that said, that's not the way we do it. Elders show him how. And the rest of the missionaries then get back in lockstep, and they're singing in harmony. Everything's perfect and uh, predictable. And I think that gives a sense at the beginning that Cunningham is maybe someone to be distrusted. He's a bit of an outsider to this community. He doesn't quite belong in the ways that others belong. And importantly for me as a, as a musicologist of studying that is how sound then tells us that he doesn't belong. The, the doorbell, he's literally out of tune with the number and with the rest of the people. And as we learned through the story and what his character comes to represent, is that maybe there are there is a virtue to being out of tune with the standard lockstep Mormonism. Maybe actually having a um, a, a voice or a way of presenting Mormonism that's slightly askew from the singular one that we have come to accept actually does a lot of good work. And in fact, and that's what happens in the story. Right. And in, in other words, he's he's not following the script, uh, the correlated script or whatever, and and actually has success with some rather strange teachings, of course, but nonetheless, uh, it's, it's more effective, right? Yeah, ab yeah, absolutely. The, the Ugandans, so I mean, Cunningham is mixing in references to all sorts of things to make the story, because he admits early on in the, in the musical that he hasn't really read the Book of Mormon, he doesn't understand things. We're told that he is kind of prone to making things up, he lies when he gets pr under pressure, and this all comes into play whenever uh, he's trying to teach um, the Ugandan villagers. He doesn't, when he comes to a part where he doesn't remember what the actual story was, he mixes in references to uh, The Hobbit or Star Wars, <laughs> Star Trek, lots of other things that have nothing to do with it. And over time, the Ugandans begin accepting this version of the story as what they later say is a metaphor. They understood it to be a metaphor and not literal. And I think that upsets a lot of the way, and it kind of satirizes a lot of the way in which Mormonism is presented, which there is one way to be a Mormon, and this is it. There is one way to interpret this story, and here, let me tell you how to do that. And Book of Mormon says that is the reality that Mormons exist in, but for all that, the best work that happens for these Ugandans is that there's this kind of made-up version of the story that actually does a lot more work than the standard one does. So what do you think Mormons who go to the Book of Mormon musical would take away? What, what, what's the message you think the creators wanted to give? My, my feeling and my, where I kind of leave this in the book is that I think Cunningham represents, uh, oddly enough, the origins of Mormonism. What Cunningham is doing by putting, pulling together things from thin, from thin air and references to popular culture is not all that different from what Joseph Smith was doing, who himself described his mission as something like a synthesizing effort. He's trying to pull together truth from various pockets and corners of the world, and Mormonism, or at least one way to think of early Mormonism, is simply that. It's a tool. It's a synthesizing tool that's somehow able to sift through and find what's real and what's useful. 
And Cunningham is kind of doing that for himself. He's he's not limited by what dogma existed prior or what people thought prior. He is eaved of that pressure and finds ways of actually making Mormonism arguably better than what Mormonism is because he's thinking more about um, – he represents, I guess, a, mo- a more multivocal component to Mormonism rather than just a singular – Voice that seems to, and singular message that seems to be promoted um, throughout correlated Mormonism today. Can I jump to a, a, a production you you mentioned earlier uh, uh, when you first started talking about the musicals that had a profound impact in in the faith, and that was Saturday's mm-hmm. Warrior, which was like came out seemed to take this faith by storm some forty years ago. What role did it play in in shaping Mormonism or how it was viewed or or whatever? Do you want to describe it yeah. first? Oh. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's kind of a complicated story, and those who who know will know that it's a kind of a it's a bizarre story as well. The musical is based on a a novel from the late nineteenth century, and the story is essentially telling about a family that exists in the pre mortal, the pre earth world who make some commitments to each other and who, know, importantly, know each other as family before they ever arrive on Earth. So brothers and sisters know each other um, as that. Soulmates are already predetermined, um, and they make commitments to find each other. And then on Earth, we meet these same characters who struggle to meet those commitments. They, for, they no longer remember being in the pre-mortal world. They um, are mismatched. So some characters are not with their soulmate, but their soulmate is in the story. And so the whole effort of the musical is to somehow reunite and make right this um, commitment between the pre-mortal and the mortal selves. So that's the basic idea of, of Saturday's Warrior. When, when it came out, uh, I think it was contributing to an overall um, pathway that I see Mormons progressing from 19th century um, kind of on the outskirts, literally leaving the country to go to another world and, um, practicing their own their own religion, and then finding the need to, to move back into America and to become Americans again at the beginning of the 20th century, that path involved more and more disciplining of the voice, trying to show that you could sound and be like the rest of the Americans, took the shape of musical theater for Mormons. And musical theater at that time especially was, uh, and we're talking about the 1940s, was maybe the most easily associable white middle-class activity <laughs> or, or practice that you could use. And so Mormons hitched a ride on the back of Mormon musical theater to help them be more accepted back into, um, into the broader mainstream America. So I see Saturday's Warrior um, as kind of further contributing to that discussion. The rock musical in the 70s, this is coming after the late 60s and early 70s when we have Jesus Christ Superstar or Hair and Godspell. So Mormons are actually very much responding to the moment. Um, and also with get kind of in the mix there were like the Osmonds and the way in which Mormons were inserting themselves into the kind of public discussion about pop, uh, popular music and rock and roll at the same time that prophets were condemning rock and roll as dangerous and something to be avoided. So it arrives at a really interesting moment where Mormon popular culture starts taking a more powerful role than maybe 
and maybe even more powerful than what the prophets and church leaders had been trying to encourage. So I think it's an interesting moment in that um, in that journey towards what eventually arrives with Book of Mormon musical. Saturday's Warrior, of course, perpetrated some false, I guess Mormons would say false doctrine. <laughs> you mentioned soulmates, of course, and uh, former president of the church, Spencer W. Kimball, famously said that soulmates are illusion. But some of those things still seem to stick <coughs> here in in the Mormon culture, right? Uh, that thinking? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I just know from personal experience as well as kind of documenting this, but you hear frequently people say, well, I know the prophet said that soulmates don't exist, but I really do prefer to believe and live in a world where that is actually the case. Um, what, what I see that as is because the story of Saturday's Warrior is based on this late 19th century, and therefore pre-correlated Mormonism, before before Mormons started kind of trimming the excess out of, of what Mormonism had grown to be, that it sidesteps correlation, and the message within that story gets inserted within pop, through popular culture. And so... Therefore, Mormons are left with a decision in a sense, like, do we believe the correlated version of what our leaders are saying, or are we going to accept, at least in part, this non-correlated story, which I kind of prefer to the standard? <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting. So even before that, um, in uh, 1947, the LDS Church produced Promised Valley, which was a big epic show. Uh, talk a little bit about that show and what it did for the church. What, what was it about? So Promise Valley was created as the, the cornerstone of this Utah centennial celebration to commemorate the 100 years since the pioneers had arrived in Utah. There was a tremendous amount of effort, both by church leaders and by state officials and leaders to make this musical do a lot of work. The narrative at that point had been towards Mormons as being suspicious, as being quasi or proto-socialist. Polygamy was an issue. There needed to be some effort to to take back the narrative and make Mormons and therefore the rest of Utah seem less strange and more normalized. And musical theater became a really good space for that. So the musical was based um, on, or, or I should say, modeled after Oklahoma, the musical Oklahoma, which premiered in 1943. The church tries to recruit um, many of the creative team from Oklahoma, from the Broadway production. They end up hiring um, the musical director from Oklahoma, the choreographer from Andy Get Your Gun. Um, they hired a Hollywood star to come in and be the, the lead for this big production. And maybe the more, most egregious example of how they're modeling Oklahoma was they hired Alfred Drake to be the lead um, of a man named Jed, Jed Cutler. Alfred Drake was, of course, the first Curly McLean on Broadway. So lots and lots of efforts being spent to try to relate Oklahoma, which was, of course, a highly whitewashed, fictionalized version of what Frontier America was, then in some way to the Mormon story to try to say these are very the Mormon pioneers are essentially iconic Americans they are escaping religious persecution they are hard workers they are all about their family and that was a lot of the work that the musical was kind of being employed to to do um, at at that time and uh, if I'm correct about this 
Promise Valley played in Utah pretty consistently and for a long time, but it was also performed again in stakes all over the country. Uh, yes. Go ahead. So yeah, yeah, yeah. this it was it was done very frequently. Uh, a, a shortened version of it was done outside Temple Square for many seasons, especially in the summer, as an outdoor version. The, the original Promise Valley was was performed outdoors as well at the University of Utah football stadium. But then there's a theater um, named Promise Valley Playhouse. Playhouse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So th- this is the level of of uh, resonance that this musical has had for Mormon culture is is pretty profound. And and you're right. It's been exported through various stakes um, in something maybe like a road show or a more sophisticated version of a road show, mm-hmm. um, all across, especially Utah. Um, but it's even a on the musical. East Coast, um, and one wonders if it it was kind of a forerunner in some ways of today's young Latter Day Saints go on these treks to kind of. Uh, re-experience the sacrifices of pioneers per se um, mm-hmm. by performing um, by performing Promise Valley it's it's ways of other people not in Utah or in Utah year, you know a century later to get a taste of that experience albeit as you say a, a whitewashed version there's no polygamy in Promise Valley. (laughs) 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 This is the number one uh, omission, (laughs) one would say. Right. Similar how there's no Native Americans in Oklahoma. All the things that become problematic get get erased. Right. Yeah, I I would, I think the, the level of, the way in which pretend or vicariousness is employed within Mormonism is is quite evident in a number of ways. The way the temple ceremony, which is uh, without divulging any much information about it, is really fundamentally about pretending to be somebody you're not. And well, isn't that the is same as idea. all religious rituals? I mean, certainly, lots of certainly other you know Catholics have, you enter into the experience. The priest it becomes the stand-in for Jesus. You know that kind of thing. Religious ritual is a kind of theater for sure. Yeah, there's a very strong connection between theater and, and ritual and religion, yeah. I think Mormons aren't, I don't think they're um, exceptional in this, but they are in a lot of ways ex, uh, exemplary for the degree to which pretend and characters that are employing pretend are kind of worshipped or utilized quite a bit. So two examples I use in the book were um, kind of origin stories from Mormons. One was in the Scripture Book of Mormon, not the musical, the Scripture Book of Mormon, and one of the in the opening pages, you have a scenario where Nephi, this young prophet, has is called upon to kill Laban, who's his ecclesiastical leader, and then put on his clothes and speak with his voice, and in order to obtain some important documents. And here you have this really interesting ethical dilemma where theatricality is mandated by God, presumably, to and murder and deceit is all kind of wrapped up within it in order to accomplish something maybe maybe for the greater good. Then you have another story, if you fast forward to 1844 and you're on the plains of Illinois and Joseph Smith has just been killed and Brigham Young gets up before this bereaved saints and he kind of makes a case that the 12 apostles have all the authority and all the keys that they need. They don't need to find a new prophet. And in the process, he seems to appear and 
also sound like Joseph Smith, at least according to records that come much later. That is an instance where also um, we know because Brigham Young was a, actually a, an actor, and as Orson Hyde later said, he could he could mimic anybody. We have some reason to doubt that this was like a miraculous event if it did in fact happen, but maybe actually a theatricalized occurrence, a flexing of the muscle. And in either case, we have the origins of Mormonism. Either the Book of Mormon couldn't happen because of theatricality, and on the on the other example, the the Latter Day Saint tradition may have taken a very different turn had Brigham Young not, in some way, flexed some theatrical muscle. And those are just two examples, and there are many, many others within scriptures that Mormons attend to in which theatricality seems to be almost a godlike quality, and that I think. Because Mormons see themselves as channeling towards a sense of godhood or a sense of perfection, that if they indeed are to become that in some future world, that maybe theatricality is a part of that. And one way to become more godlike is to become more theatrical. And so that's the reason why I see so much effort and significance in musical theater for Mormons today. Interesting. Jake, a couple more questions. Um, we mentioned the pageants, and the church is, uh, of course, stepping away from virtually all of those larger production pageants. The, the Mormon Miracle pageant in Manti just had its final performances. Hilcomora pageant, the one back uh, in upstate New York, ends next year. What did these pageants, pageants contribute, and, and what's being lost with their departure? I think there, kind of what Peggy was speaking to earlier, there was a sense of reenactments that become really important for Mormons in the 20th century, um, drawing focus to the pioneer uh, heritage. Um, lots of memorials get erected around this time, musicals, dramas, pageants. Those are all uh, all of kind of, of of the same character, which are trying to, um, as I argue in the book, essentially re-enter sacred time for Mormons to pull themselves back into a a period and space where um, Mormonism in its fullness could be exercised without constraint from outside. And that has a lot to do with the practice of polygamy. It has a lot to do with uh, freedom and religious principles. So I think fundamentally that animates a lot of that, um, the rise of pageants um, specifically, but also all the other kinds of trappings of uh, pioneer treks and those those kinds of, uh, of memorials. When the church decided to move away from the pageants recently, I, I wondered, and in fact, I wrote, I wrote a, a, an op-ed in the Tribune about this, I wondered a little bit if this had to do with the kind of racial implications of musical theater today. Um, when, I, when I started writing the book, I, I noticed that, um, as other historians have, have noted as well, that Mormons were, an, were considered an ethnic minority for much of the 19th century, and it had a lot to do with not acting correctly. They were they were white, they were Anglo predominantly, and yet they weren't acting white enough. And that had to do with polygamy and uh, kind of living in communal environments. And so Mormons spent a good deal of the 20th century trying to overcome that and kind of aspiring to a level of whiteness that hadn't um, that was pretty generous and pretty um, extravagant. And so that journey towards uh, towards whiteness or towards acceptance took the shape largely with musical theater as kind of white vehicle. But because the church now sees itself in its borders 
larger than whiteness, you're starting to see much more acceptance about where Mormons and Mormonism is growing. It's much more growing among in um, in the South America or in parts of Africa. That maybe that story isn't giving as much as it used to. Maybe that quest for whiteness is maybe a liability. So I wondered a little bit if maybe getting rid of the pageants or at least stepping back from them so much was a way of recognizing that the story of Mormonism maybe is bigger, that it could be more enfolding if it wasn't so heavily pushed towards this genre that seems perhaps problematically one-dimensional or one of one color. But it, uh, that's an excellent point, Jake. What about, I mean, it does seem like there's not as much musical theater going on within Mormonism. Roadshows are over. Now pageants are over. The one remaining area where Latter-day Saints enter in the story is in the temple. Um, <clears throat> so do you see uh, do you see the church pulling back from the need for this musicality, Miss Musical Theater in going forward? I, I actually see it much less than I have seen mm -hmm. it in the past. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I do too. And I of think course there's not the temple is not musical theater. Let's just be clear on this. <laughs> theater, yes. Ritual, yes. but uh -huh. not musical. No one bursts into song. Right, there's no there's no jazz hands in the temple. <laughs> no. Yeah, I see. There is, there is a lessening of it, and I think, frankly, musical theater has changed since the 1940s, since that's kind of the mid part of the 20th century when Mormonism really begins flowering as this big American entity. And maybe there's a sense of distancing from that. The the connections to wholesome entertainment, um, unproblematic narratives, simple solutions where everything works out in the end, uh, comedies, that all seems to be not quite the narrative that musical theater has taken. It's shifted since the, in, in the intervening years. And maybe... Some of the response to that has been to distance, you know, the church has distanced itself from that. Like it doesn't, musical theater, for example, is has traditionally been a space uh, of much acceptance for the queer community, um, for gay men especially. Um, it's It may be that the church finds less relevance in that world than it once did and finds it a, maybe a bit of a liability in a way. Do, do you think that's a good thing, the way the trend is going? Or or could something be lost from that? You know, I, I think I think musicals can serve many different kinds of purposes. So I, I will say that, it, that you don't have to accept every narrative that exists uh, in a particular genre for you to enjoy it. Uh, clearly, people enter into musical theater for lots of reasons. I, I, I don't think Mormons can move completely away from what? undergirds musical theater and that's part of the point of the book it's musical theater is just simply a manifestation of something that's fundamental to mormons which is this idea of theatricality and so even if the church starts moving away from from musical theater or if mormons themselves start taking less interest in musical theater which actually mormons i, I, don't, I don't see that happening i see yeah, a lot i don't of either mormons <laughs> still very active in it um, but if institutionally the church wants to move away from that, I don't, I, I don't know if it completely can change. I, I think it will always be some quality there. Okay, Jake Johnson, thanks so much for joining us today.
Absolutely. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Again, the book is Mormons, Musical Theater, and Belonging in America. Peggy Fletcher Stack, thanks for your coverage. Always a pleasure, Dave. We also thank our producer, Sarah Weber, and we'll talk again next week on Mormonland. Land.